Good morning, church. Jean Rebec in 1556 in a small town in France called Angers was burned to the stake. And before they burned his body to the stake, they cut out his tongue. The only reason that they cut out his tongue because it was customary at that time for the martyrs to sing as they burned at the stake. Not only would they sing, but they would sing something very specific. They would sing the 79th Psalm. So as his body continued to burn, you could still hear him without his tongue as he would sting out the 79th Psalm. Now why in the world would someone sing a psalm as their body is consumed in flames? The psalms for centuries have been a source of comfort for us as we go through our darkest days. The psalms have been a source of strength for us as we find ourselves dealing with situations that we never thought we'd have to deal with. And today we're going to look at Psalm 118 and we're going to find encouragement as we look at that psalm. Some of you may be here today in one of your darkest days. Those of you watching may be watching in your darkest days. I pray that you will find hope in this psalm. Please stand with me as we read the word of God. We're going to turn to Psalms 118. Beginning in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. And I would give thanks to you. You are my God. And I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You may be seated. You may be seated. There's one thing that I would like to leave you with today, is that we as Christians have the sacred honor and privilege to courageously praise and proclaim God's salvation. We as Christians have the sacred honor and privilege to courageously praise and proclaim God's salvation. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you are our source of strength. As we consider your word, Father God, help us to be reminded that we do so in you. Give us insight, Lord. Give us truth. Hide me behind this pulpit, Father God. Open our hearts that we may receive your word and that it may grow and bloom and ultimately be fruit for your kingdom. Father God, I pray that you would be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. This psalm is pretty long. 
it's about 29 verses, so it's easier to break it down into a couple different sections. So before we really get into the structure of the psalm, I think it's important to give a little background. Psalm 118 is probably the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's mentioned several times, especially in John. Jesus himself sang this psalm, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. We know that it's also in historical context, known as the last of the Egyptian halal songs. Psalms 113 all the way through 118 were sung in celebration of the Passover. This is a Passover psalm, so it's very fitting for us today. The psalm has a couple different applications in history. It was sang in a procession as the Hebrew people would approach the temple in the second temple period. But in Jesus' day, it was typically saying after the Passover meal. The structure of the psalm is pretty, pretty simple, at least to me, but probably not. If you look at it, it seems like a lot of it kind of merges together. But I have decided to break it down into four different sections, beginning with verses 1 through 4. We have an invitation to praise. As we move on down, verses 5 through 16, there's praise for the past. Verses 17 through 19 is praise for our present. And then verses 20 through 29 are praise for the future things to come. As we begin reading in verse 1, the psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Here we have three pretty basic facts. We know the action which is to happen. We know the audience and we know the reason. The action is clear. Praise the Lord. The audience is a little bit more interesting. The psalmist begins first by mentioning Israel, the nation, he moves next into the house of Aaron, which were the priests at the time. And then finally, he mentions those who fear the Lord, which are the people of God. He's saying everyone in principle should praise the Lord. We move on to the reason, which is simple. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. I consider this an invitation to praise. My eight-year-old daughter, a couple weeks ago, I had her birthday. And so my wife put together these little birthday cards and they were cute and we invited people out to her birthday party and so forth. It wasn't a lot of people because, you know, we don't have a lot of money for a lot of people to come to the birthday party. So we're one of those families that uh, we try to just get like her school friends and stuff like that. Anyway, so Kennedy passes out the invitations and so forth. And then, you know, the, the occasion is her birthday party. And then you have to accept an RSVP and so forth. An invitation is always extended to us as God's people to praise. The option, however, is are we going to RSVP for that invitation? The psalmist has given us a clear call. Praise the Lord. Let all God's people Praise the Lord. But no one can make you praise the Lord. John Rebecca was not made to praise the Lord. We have an invitation before us to praise the Lord. We know also that Christ modeled for us thanksgiving 
In Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, we read, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. We read again in Matthew chapter 15, verses 36. He took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd. In John chapter 11, verse 41, we read, so they took away the stone, the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Christ has modeled the invitation. Are you going to RSVP today as God has invited you to come and praise him? What is it that you're waiting for, I would ask? Do you need an invitation to praise God? Is there not enough reason already here? As I put my hand on my chest, I'm reminded that I'm alive. As I speak, I'm reminded that there's air in my lungs. Those are two reasons alone that I can praise God. As we continue reading, the psalmist not only gives us the invitation, but he tells us the different reasons why we should praise God. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 118 of Psalm 118. Out of my distress, I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The psalmist in uh, verses five through seven recognize that there are enemies that are present who have surrounded him in the past and they had overtaken him. He was pressed from all sides. We don't really know who wrote this song. We believe it was a king, perhaps David. So we understand that the life of David wasn't an easy life. He constantly had to fight. He constantly had to deal with different enemies. But here we see the psalmist reverting or reflecting back on those times in what I consider a reflection journal, a gratitude journal perhaps. He's writing down his victories of the past. He's remembering and reflecting on the times that God had been with him and how God had given him the victory. In verses 8 through 9, we also see that he's reflecting perhaps on a time where he may have taken trust in men. He reminds us that only fools trust in man over God. The Lord is his refuge. The nation of Israel was notorious, unfortunately, for trusting in different things other than God. Specifically, they would often go to Egypt for help. And in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, we read, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add to sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. 
Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and distress. The psalmist in verses 10 through 13 reflects on the time where he was pressed and shaken, but he didn't fall, for the Lord had helped him. Verses 4 through 16 help us to remember the salvation of the Lord. Verse 14 is perhaps the most important verse in this psalm. It reads, the Lord is my strength and my song. He is and he has become my salvation. It is the central idea of this text, if you're looking for one this morning. We are to praise God for his power. He is a powerful God. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, we read that your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In 2010, around October, there was this story which happened in Chile. It was covered on international news. 33 miners were trapped three miles beneath the Earth's surface for 69 days. And everyone, everywhere, was captivated by this, this situation. For almost two and a half months, we watched in anticipation as these miners were underneath the ground, hoping and praying for them. And some of you remember that. We wanted them to come back to the earth safely. And as you know, they did. On October the 13th of 2010, they came up out of their, their cave. One by one, they were hoisted up. And you can see their faces covered in dust, but there was a smear that passed down their cheeks as they expressed gratitude and thanksgiving to God because they had been delivered. They had been delivered from sure death. We all have something that we can reflect that God has done for us in the past. We don't need to be reminded. We don't need to be probed or probed. We just need to be mindful of what God has done for us. What has God done for you lately? As we look at this psalm, we also mentioned, or I mentioned earlier, that it is the psalm of Jesus. And as he was walking to the Garden of Gethsemane on the last or after the Last Supper, he understands what's in front of him. The toll, the, <laughs> the humiliation, the, the brutal beating that he was about to endure. He knew that it was going to take a toll on him. Christ, who was fully man and fully God, understood what was coming up. And as he read this psalm, or at least sang it out as he's walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, we know that he found strength in reflecting on what God had done for him in the past. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave thanks to the Lord and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Drink of it. All of you, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not eat, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out. 
to the Mount of Olives. God has been faithful to us, and we can take Christ's example as we face a difficult circumstance in front of us. We can know that he has been faithful to us in our past. What is it that you are thankful for? Is it cancer you were healed from? Is it an addiction that God has delivered you from? Is it another struggle that you don't want to mention? Is it car troubles perhaps in the past? I had a 1985 Cadillac DeVille before I left for the military. And this thing was so raggedy that I'd have to keep a jug of water in the trunk because it overheat probably every five or 10 miles. And all I needed was five miles to get to work. You best believe that I thank God every time now I turn the ignition on that truck because God has been faithful. He's delivered me from that Cadillac DeVille. (laughs) I would encourage you to create a gratitude journal yourself. Write down at the end of your day things that God has done for you just that day. Just that day. Just today you can think of at least a thousand things, I'm sure, that God has done for you. Write them down at the end of the day as you spend time in reflection. And when you're facing hard times, you open up that journal, read those entries, and then read Psalm 118, and it'll get you fired up. As we continue reading in verse 17, we find the psalmist at present in a tough circumstance as he seeks God in his present circumstance. Verses 17 through 19 read, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The psalmist is clearly in the midst of a trial. He is reflecting on God's goodness in the past, but he's also acknowledging what's in front of me, what I'm dealing with right now is tough. But he proclaims, I shall not die. The danger is real. It's real to him. Death is real, but God's even realer. In verse 18, he understands that he has been disciplined by God. Perhaps he's been disciplined because he strayed away. Perhaps he's being disciplined because God loves him and his grace is bringing him back too. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, we read that the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. In verse 19, we see the psalmist, as he's considering the discipline of the Lord, demand that the gates of righteousness be open to him. That the gates of righteousness be open. There is a specific gate in the outer court, or the gate to the outer court, where the Jews would come through. And it was considered the gate of righteousness because those who came through it were righteous. And it's interesting as we consider this idea of a procession marching down the street and the Jews all marching toward the temple and they walk through the gate of righteousness to enter for the opportunity to worship. We are reminded of our Connect team. We have folks who have volunteered their time using their gifts to, um, to meet right here at the front of the church or perhaps at the back door if you bring in your kids. And they meet everyone and their charge is really just to love on those people, love on all of you, but love on all of us as we come through the house of God in worship. But it's interesting, and as a matter of fact, we've got a good crew, or most of our Connect team are in Philly right now. And I just wanted to give them a shout out. Um, doing work in Redemption Heights, our church plant up there. So Pastor Chris 
and the team. We love you guys. Be safe. We'll see you when you get back. We need you. When you came in this morning through one of the entrances, did anyone ask you, um, are you righteous? No? Did anyone say, hey, where's your righteousness pass? Right? No? Didn't happen? That didn't happen. What gives you the right to be here? Just think about that for a second. What gives any of us the right to worship God? A holy and perfect God. We are sinful people. We flaw, we err, we lose our faithfulness. What gives us the right to worship God? I think the better question is who gives us the right to worship God? Who is it that gives us the right? Friends, I would challenge you today that Christ alone is the only reason that any of us have the right to be here worshiping God. There's nothing that any of us have done to deserve the opportunity to worship God. In your gratitude journal, make sure that you don't put anything that you have done to deserve the opportunity to worship God. As you enter the church, you can, with boldness, proclaim, open the doors that I may worship. But understand, friends, it is not through your own efforts. It is through Christ. It is through Christ that which we have the ability to praise. Shortly, Pastor Brian will come back up. And he'll give you an invitation to join us as we proclaim the Savior. He's going to invite you to praise God. As you consider before you that opportunity, be sure to reflect on God's goodness, not on your goodness as the reason by which you can praise God. As we move forward to the end of our psalm in verses 20 through 28, we read that this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Right? Save us, we pray, O Lord. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. We see that the psalmist is looking to a future hope. Even as he reflects on what God has done for him in the past, he acknowledges his current situation. He's ultimately looking to the future for a perfected salvation that will come. As we understand, as we read through this psalm, there's a key word that kind of pokes out here, and it's the cornerstone. And this is a difficult word to understand. It's not something that we talk about in our typical vernacular. And so as Pastor Ryan has taken us through Daniel and taught us a lot of really good Bible study techniques. He's reminded us that if you find a passage that's a bit difficult, look in other places in scripture and figure out where you can find an, a little bit more clarity. So in verse 22, as he talks about this idea of a cornerstone, I was led to Isaiah chapter 28 in my studies, specifically verse 16, which reads, Therefore, 
Thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So we understand that God is the placer of the cornerstone. In my studies, I continued reading and I found in Matthew 21 verses 42 through 44 that Jesus said to them, have you never read in scripture? This is Christ pointing back to Isaiah. Isaiah was pointing back to the psalmist. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We see this stone also has the ability to judge. That this stone, for some, will be a stumbling block. As I continue my studies, I came across 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5, through 5, which read, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrificial spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ to God. We understand that Christ is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. He has become the chief stone. He today is the stone by which we are given the privilege to worship and praise. In verses 23 through 26 of Psalm 118, we hear a familiar cry, Hosanna, which literally means, save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. As the people walk through their procession on the way to the temple, acknowledging that they are at the gates, that they are in the temple, perhaps even, because God has opened the doors for them, yet they still need a future complete salvation. In the Passover, they were celebrating that they were freed from the Egyptians, that a Passover lamb was slain for them, that the blood of the Passover lamb could spare them from death. Yet they still need a savior. Centuries and centuries of sacrifices, centuries and centuries of sin led them to acknowledge the fact that they still needed salvation. They still needed a Messiah. In Matthew 21, verses 6 through 11, we read the door, the Lord, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought a donkey and a colt and put on them their cloaks and they sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut psalm or branches or palms from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this, they said. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. As we continue reading in Psalm 118, verses 27 through 28, we see that there is a sacrifice that is to be bound to the altar. There is a sacrifice that needs to be made. 
One scholar writes regarding this sacrifice, what those who took part in such a ceremony could never have foreseen was that it would one day suddenly enact itself on the road to Jerusalem, unrehearsed, unliturgical, and with explosive force. In that week when God's realities broke through, his symbols and shadows, the horns of the altar became the arms of the cross, and the festival itself found fulfillment in Christ, the Passover lamb. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 gives us a little bit more insight on who this Passover lamb was. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who drew near. 1 Corinthians verse chapter 5 verse 7 reads, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. They no longer needed a lamb, but they needed a permanent and total savior. There's nothing that they could have done to continue to atone for their sins. God's wrath was appeased for a moment, but it would not last forever. As they found themselves about 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, or excuse me, in Bethany, as Jesus left out, he found himself on a donkey. And as he walked through the streets on the way to Jerusalem from Bethany, we realized that as they were shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, what they were doing was fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11 reads, the Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. This isn't in your notes, but also in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foil, of a donkey. As they laid palm branches on the road, they were celebrating the fact that their Messiah had come, that they'd been looking forward since Psalm 118 was drafted, since Isaiah prophesied, since Zechariah prophesied, this ultimately, this ultimate and permanent Savior who was to reign in Jerusalem. The only issue is that they kind of misidentified who was coming to them. They looked for a king who would reign in Jerusalem who would free them from their Roman occupiers, who would be the king of the world, who would show them that they were really a people of prestige, who would give them their rightful place in history. The only issue is that just a few days later, the same king that they were praising Hosanna, save us to, would be the one that they would be screaming, crucify, crucify him. They were looking for Jesus of Jerusalem, not Jesus of eternity. Jesus of Jerusalem, they were hoping, would free them from Caesar. Jesus of eternity came to free them from sin. They were hoping that Jesus of Jerusalem would be their king in Israel. Jesus of eternity came to be their king in heaven. Jesus of Jerusalem would establish their position as the dominant people of the world, God's treasured special people over all other people. 
Jesus of eternity came to establish his church as the most humble people in the world, often those who were crushed and abused. Jesus of Jerusalem was a mistaken king, but Jesus of eternity is the rightful savior and Messiah that we worship today. The opportunity for you as we consider the invitation to praise is which Jesus will you be screaming Hosanna to? Which Jesus will you be crying out to save you? Jesus of Jerusalem or Jesus of eternity? Too often, too many of us walk around with the Jesus of Jerusalem in our back pocket, hoping that he'll expand our earthly kingdom, hoping that he'll give us all the nice things that we want, that he'll get our kids through their school and make sure that all of our debts are paid off and he'll give us good health and so forth and so on. Unfortunately, that's just not the Jesus of eternity. Jesus of eternity came here for our souls. He came here for our entire life. He came here for our entire being and he wants us to surrender and to submit to him who we are, our everything. As we praise God and worship on Palm Sunday, we acknowledge the fact that this Jesus is not going to accept anything less than our complete lives. In a moment, we're going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to consider Jesus of eternity. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've never prayed the prayer of forgiveness, if you've never submitted your life to Jesus, it doesn't matter if you've been watching for years, if you've been walking to this church for decades, now is the day. Jesus of eternity is waiting for you. Jesus of Jerusalem has passed by. As we close our eyes and bow our heads, I'd ask everyone to do that, please. I'm going to pray a prayer and ask those of you who have never accepted Christ as their savior to do so at this point. Lord God, forgive us of our sins. We acknowledge that without you, Lord, we are nothing. We've tried to run our lives. We've tried to have command. We've tried to take control, but we've failed. We've fallen back time and time again. And Lord, we need you now. Save us, Lord. We praise you and worship you as the true Messiah, the lamb that was sacrificed, the king of the world. Forgive us of our sins and we accept you now into our hearts. Lord, we acknowledge that you are truly Jesus of eternity.